tonight um, to get to share from, from God's Word. Like Andy said, my name is Austin. I'm part of the pastoral staff here at Reality, and I get to continue our series in Acts today. Now, uh, recently I have been getting into poetry, kind of this unexpected uh, new new thing for me. I was always been the guy, like in high school, and I didn't read poetry. I was like, this is so dumb. There's some hidden meaning that I'm supposed to be able to figure out that doesn't actually make sense. So I kind of like wrote, up, wrote it off forever. But I'm recently kind of making a foray back into it. So I want to start tonight with a poem. Kind of leaning into this here. Um, but as I read it, I want you to think about the passage that you just heard read. Um, think about how it ties in to what, what you heard. So it starts like this. It says, Ah, glory, thou art a fading leaf, thy fragrance false, the blossoms brief. And those who for thee sigh worship a falling star whose path is lost in darkness and in death. So it begins, glory is a fading leaf, a fragrance false, and a blossom brief. I think the text today highlights two kinds of glory. The kind of glory that this poem talks about, the glory of Herod and of earthly powers and kingdoms, which is a fading leaf, right? It's about fall, right? The leaves are beautiful for a time, like right now. But pretty soon they're going to be on the ground, and Watson's going to be crunching around them, and then they're going to like go who knows where. But then our story also highlights the other kind of glory, the glory of God. It's a different type of power from a different type of king and a different type of kingdom. So we're going to dive into the text today and asking the question, what, what does God want to convey to his followers by this rescue of Peter contrasted with the judgment of Herod. I think there's two primary things. There's one, that the power, the power and the glory of the kingdoms of man is fleeting. But the power and the glory of the kingdom of God endures and multiplies. I think the text is clear today that God's word in his church is going to endure and multiply, even in the midst of marginalization and persecution and oppression. While Herod and the most prominent rulers of the earth will eventually come to nothing, even in the midst of their, the height and pinnacle of their worldly glory. So we're going to look at these two conclusions. I'm going to start with the first, that the powers of earth are fleeting. So I'm going to, we're going to spend time on Herod first and how he uses his power. So we're going to start verses 1 through 4 and then jump down to 18 through 23. And we'll come back to Peter in 5 through 17 and then verse 24. So starting in verse 1, you can, you can follow along in your handout. So it was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword, and when he saw that this was met with approval from the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread, and after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So right from the start here, we see that Peter's going to use his power to start this violent persecution of the church. And verse 3, it, it tells us why. It says he saw that when he had arrested James, that it pleased the Jews. So at least in part, he's doing this for popularity. He's doing this to, to boost his approval ratings, right? He sees that, wow, when I use my power against this group, it gains me more popularity. So he's using his power against the powerless and the marginalized for the sake of social and political gain. He kills James with a sword. Now James, he's one of the twelve apostles, one of Jesus' you know, 
know, the 12 disciples that, that Jesus calls. But he's also one of those inner three, right? Like he does these extra little excursions with Peter, James, and John. And so it's, it's a big moment for the first of the 12 to lose their life following Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we've already heard about Stephen, and Stephen gets like a chapter and a half. But it's interesting, James gets, James gets like a sentence. I don't, I kind of thought about that, and I was like, is there something there? I'm not really sure, there probably is. But it's interesting that in this short note that we learn that, that James seems to be executed for no apparent reason other than that Herod wants to gain popularity. Herod, like, like so many others, he saw the lives of some people as worth so little value that it was of no account for him to take away the breath of life that God had breathed into him. And in his thirst to build his following, Herod says, hey, that went well. I should do it again. If I take Peter into custody, they'll like that. So he arrests Peter, throws him into what would be sort of a max security prison of his day. It says he's guarded by four squads of four soldiers. He has 16 people on you. He knows Peter's, you know, if you remember back earlier in Acts, there was another jailbreak by Peter, so he knows Peter's kind of <laughs> a reputation for this. Um, yeah, so he puts Peter under this max security detail. But it also says this during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, during the Passover celebration, which I find this to be like an interesting detail. It's really, really key on, key on it. So it's, yeah, the, the Feast of the, the Unleavened Bread is at hand. So what this is, the Passover, uh, if you're not familiar, it's this time where the Jews are celebrating the, the liberating work of God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt and under the hand of oppression of Pharaoh. So Passover was like the most defining moment uh, in the history of Israel. There, It defined who their identity was, who they understood themselves to be, who they understood God to be, that God was their great liberator and that they were his freedom people, the people that he had brought out from Pharaoh and brought into their own land. But there's irony here, right? I think Luke wants us to pick up on this, the author that in the middle of celebrating the liberating power of God to bring freedom from tyranny and bondage, they are pleased to condone the oppression of one of their own, or a couple of their own, Peter and James. The interpretation commentary says like this, it says, this day finds Peter languishing in bondage, not celebrating liberation. The people who once saw God deliver them from slavery now make prisoners, prisoners of their own kin during the Feast of Liberation. So it's in this effort to be overly buddy-buddy with the empire that the Jewish leaders begin to compromise, or continue to, maybe not begin to, uh, to compromise their very identity. They're sacrificing part of their deepest held convictions that they're God's liberation people for the sake of some political and social gain. They want Herod to like them. They want Herod to rule them favorably. They want Rome to view them in a positive light. And so in their quest to assure that this would continue to happen, they compromise their God-given purpose and identity. They value being at peace under the rule of Rome more than being faithful under the rule of God. And I wonder if there are times where we fall into this same trap. Are there, is our hope in the leaders of nations and of movements, or is it in the God who has all power, who is the Lord of all? What is it or who is it that we actually expect to rescue us? Is it the power of the living God? Or is it in elected officials or lawmakers or justices? Have we compromised the values of God's kingdom for the sake of an earthly life? The 
church, I believe we must not settle for a reduced or compromised gospel just to have an influencing role on the empire, but we should seek to embrace the holistic gospel that trusts and follows a king and a kingdom that has no loyalty to Caesar and Caesar, whom Caesar has no power over. Because only the church, only the church empowered by the Holy Spirit can actually advance the kingdom of God. And God's people live our lives with our hope and loyalty set on God. So if Herod using his earthly power, right, for the means of his own gain, and many of the leaders of the Jewish people entrusting themselves to the rule of this tyrant as they believe it benefits their goals also. So it's not a great picture, right? And at this point you might be thinking, well, didn't you say like God's power, or that the power powers of earth is fleeting? It seems like at this point Herod's doing pretty well for himself, like he's building his popularity, he's increasing his domain. Well, so at this point that the story begins to take a turn. We see God intervene. And next in the text, starting in verse uh, verses 5 and 9, it talks about the mirac miraculous release of Peter, which is itself a thwarting of Herod in his quest here for power. But we're going to come back to that later. We're going to skip down to verse 18. Look at 18 through 23 and continue to look at Herod. So in verse 18, Peter's been, he's already been released from prison. You know, spoiler alert, Herod heard it, but uh, not surprising, there's this big uproar, right? They, Herod launches this full investigation and he holds the guards that he set over Peter accountable. He has them put to death. And beginning of verse 20, we get this next scene about Herod. It says that, uh, he, oh yeah, so this scene, this scene is interesting, right? Because um, Luke could have ended, Luke could have ended the story, right? At the end of Peter's release. But he chooses to continue on and include this bit about Herod's death. Because I think he wants to highlight the contrast between these two kingdoms. So we've got angry Herod, whose anger is directed at, at the people of Tyre and Sidon, and he's in retribution for, for something that the text doesn't mention. He decides to cut off their food supply. So again, he's willing to withhold this basic human need from an entire population for his own political And this move, you know, you could maybe say it was shrewd, right? Like it gets him, gets him what he wants, gets the people to come to him asking for peace. But it's in this moment of reveling in his power and his might, he makes this great speech over these multitudes of people that he actually mixes in. He begins to believe the hype when the people shout the voice of a God and not of a man. He hears this and he thinks to himself, you know what, they're right. And in the height of his power and his influence and his success, he needs his end. And it makes me think of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, if you're familiar with the story in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who, in, whose pride is his downfall and in the pinnacle of his glory and his power, he's struck down by God. And this is attested to, it says he's eaten by worms and dies. Um, the historian Josephus talks about this as well, that uh, after five, Herod dies in about the course of five days after this event, um, he has these like intestinal worms of some sort. Seems kind of gross. So I'm not sure about that. But. So it's attested to by outside sources, and Luke obviously attributes, attributes it to the hand of God, um, that God takes him down. The voice of a God and not of a man. And so God has ultimate power over kings and nations and their rise and fall. It makes me think of Luke, or it makes me uh, think of Isaiah 45, 5, where God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. And through this act of God judging Herod, uh, we discover that in contrast to Herod, who uses his power to act corruptly,
powerfully in distinction of violence against the powerless. God actually uses his power to act on behalf of the powerless, for their rescue and for their freedom. It's this contrast of two kings and two kingdoms, the use of power in two different ways. So Herod, he makes this grand speech, but now he's silent. We see that God's word is going to continue to, to speak, to continue to explode. So seeing, so first, yeah, we looked at the powers of the kingdom, the verses are fleeting, but now we're going to transition to see that the power of the kingdom of God endures and multiplies. And the contrast is really stark, uh, both in the use of power and in its end results. And so again, again to the Peter narrative, we see verse 5 through 17, and then let's look at that, and again, verse 24. So starting in verse 5, we see the approach that the church takes to this persecution. Verse 5 says that the, the church was praying earnestly to God for Peter. And the way that this is, is constructed uh, grammatically, it tells us a few different things. Uh, so this is a constant, repeated, continuous prayer. And then to that, Luke adds the, the adjective earnest. It's earnest prayer. It's not from the gut. This is the same Greek word that is used of Jesus when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. The same author, Luke, same author of Acts, who's the author of the Gospel of Luke, and in Luke 22, he says of Jesus, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So Luke's telling us that the, the church was praying in this earnest manner, like Jesus in the Garden. They're praying with everything that they had. They're praying like I love the way that uh, the interpretation commentary puts it. It says that the church swings into action using its power against the power of Herod. The power of the church is the power of prayer. The church it doesn't pick up the sword. It doesn't seek to pull insider strings with the state. The church prays. Continuously, earnestly. We can contrast that with what the, the Jewish leaders had done earlier. But if we want to see power of God go forth in our city, and in our relationships, and in our world, we must pray. We have to pray. That's part of why we circle up every week and do, do these prayer groups. And I don't want to steal man, man is going to come up in a little bit and talk about prayer. I don't want to like take from our thunder, but this is why we focus on prayers at church, because prayers are <coughs> optional, not an elective. Well, we see what happens next. We learn that nothing can prevent the movement of God, not even the chains and the prisons of mighty Herod. Starting in verse 6, it says, The night before Herod was to bring Peter to trial, he was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to an iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know, God is out. The Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything that the Jewish people were hoping would happen. So, on the heels of the Passover celebrations that are happening all around the city, the liberating power of God goes forth and rescues Peter from his prison. 
Once again, God acts from his character, bringing freedom to the oppressed. And it takes a while, but Peter, Peter finally realizes what's, what's happening is real. He thinks it's a vision. Uh, like two chapters ago, we were talking about the vision of Cornelius and the sheep and the, and the animals. He thinks he's, he's in another one of those, but finds out halfway through, like, oh, this is real. Like, God actually brought me out of here. And so he goes to the place where he knows people are going to be gathered. What are they doing? They gather together in the middle of the night. They're praying. And actually, it feels like every, every, every week we come back to prayer. It's like, you can't escape it. Everything, every week, but you can try to skip over it, but it always comes back to prayer. And so there's this kind of moment of humor in the midst of this, this story. I think it's kind of funny because uh, it's, it's pretty relatable. Um, I don't know about you, but it's relatable to me. So Peter, Peter gets to the house, and this woman named Rhoda answers the door. And in her joy, she runs in to tell the others. So she leaves Peter at the door. And I don't know, she, she talks about she runs in in her joy, and I feel like you can't miss an opportunity to skip to talk about joy. We mentioned at the beginning of every service that our mission statement is to advance joy in Boston. And when we see here the power of God at work to rescue and deliver people, it brings joy. We want to see, I mean, our mission is advancing joy because we want to see God bring rescue and healing from every form of oppression in our city. Because where the gospel goes, it brings freedom and it brings joy. All week I've been thinking about, uh, if you were here last week, we had the Teen Challenge Choir uh, with us. And these are, are men who are going through this um, addiction uh, program to, to work on overcoming addiction. And they were here and they were testifying to the goodness of God and the joy that the gospel had brought them, the freedom that they found through this program and through the work of God in their lives. And you could, you could, you could like see the joy, but also you could like feel it. And they were talking, you could, you could feel it. And that's what we want to see. We want to be people who embody joy. Not just talk about it. I don't know that I'm great at this. I think I could be kind of like, I mean, probably like, man, you're really boring. You don't seem really joyful. Like, it's, <laughs> I, I need to, I like want to work on this. Like, embodying joy is something that comes naturally. Um, I, think it, I think it comes to the shadow a little bit more. <laughs> you, like, lift me, you can, like, lift me up here. But we want to be people who embody the joy of Jesus. The gospel is good news, that it brings freedom and hope and healing. So we have Peter himself. He's the answer to their prayers. Right? This church, we just talked about the church is praying earnestly, right? He's the answer to their prayers, and he's stuck outside while Rhoda's inside telling them, Peter's here. And what do they do? They don't believe it. They say, you're out of your mind. The Greek word there is, the, word, the root is the same thing that we derive the word maniac from. Being a maniac. And it's so relatable, right? It's like the very thing that they've been praying for is right in front of them. But they don't believe it. And not only do they not believe it, they don't even really like entertain that it's possible. They tell Rhoda she's crazy. It makes me think of Thomas after Jesus' resurrection when the disciples are telling him, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas, is, he says in John 20, he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, I put my fingers where the nails were, I put my hands into his side, I will not believe. These gathered disciples were basically saying back to Rhoda, like, we, we must see Peter in order to believe. Because Peter's rescue here, it's, it's, it's about a resurrection, right? Like, people don't come back from Herod's prison being carried by four squads and four soldiers. He was as good as dead. And it must have felt to the church as though he was brought back from the grave like Lazarus. Or like Jesus. And so while the disciples tell Rhoda that she's out of her mind, Peter keeps knocking on the door. He wants to testify. He wants to 
to this community of believers that powerful Herod has no power to stop the gospel going forward. I wonder if, when Peter's telling the story of how he's been freed from prison, I wonder if he thought back to Jesus' sermon in Luke 4. When he said that, Jesus said that the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the business that Jesus is in. Good news for the poor, freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. God uses his power to act on behalf of the powerless. In contrast to Herod, and the, and the power of the earth, which exploits and oppresses those who are under their power for being. So if we get back to the two observations that I posed at the beginning, that, that the power and the glory of the kingdom's birth is fleeting, and the power and the glory of the kingdom of God endures and multiplies. I think God wants his followers to take heart, even in the midst of oppression and marginalization, to know that his purposes cannot be thwarted, and that his power stands over and above all the powers of the earth. I think Luke, Luke wants his readers and us today to know that God, not Caesar, not any nation, not any leader, rules the world. And in verse, 20, in verse 24, he draws this conclusion for us with total clarity. He says, uh, this is following Herod in the 23, it says in verse 24 that the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. Literally, literally to increase and multiply. The word of God, with no earthly status or acclaim, under increasing pressure and marginalization under the empire, that's what increases and multiplies. While Herod and the powers of the world falter and die. Herod is now relegated to the forgotten and dusty footnotes of history. But the Lord's speech continues to our day. He still speaks even now. Isaiah 47 and 8, it says, The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. I feel like the story is basically a case study of Isaiah 47 and 8. It's an example. This is what that means. So now for, the question kind of becomes like, what's the response? What is the response that God is hoping to elicit from his followers in doing this great work? I think I've touched on it kind of along the way, but um, a few questions that I want us to ask her and honestly evaluate is, is where is our hope directed? And where do our loyalties lie? So our hope should be rooted in God and his power alone. And our loyalties should lie in his kingdom above all others. Because for the early Christians, the statement that Jesus is Lord is a statement that Caesar is not Lord. Mm -hmm. As we seek to be people who are rooting our hope in God and deepening our loyalties to his kingdom, what happens as we begin to pursue that is that our values begin to align more and more with God's values. So we begin to desire greater things that he desires. And as we strive by the Spirit not to compromise those things. And there's, you know, that encompasses many things, but I think a couple that our story highlights today is that God, who is the great liberator, who uses his power on behalf of the power, powerless and the oppressed, he wants his people to do the same. 
We also see that the power of the church is the power of prayer. Because we, we want to exercise that power by being people of prayer. Prayer is the engine of God's power at work in the church, which gives it life and motion. I'm going to put my nose on Mandy coming up here. She's going to come up now sooner. But um, we're going to talk about prayer ministry here at Reality and ways you can be participating in that. Because prayer, prayer is the engine of God's power. So I want to close with this. When the church prays, and when the church seeks to live out the values of God's kingdom, trusting in his power above everything else, that's when the joy and the freedom of the gospel go forward. Amen.